Scaffold is supported by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. From the Architecture Foundation, I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. My guest this week is the engineer Albert Williamson Taylor, who, along with Hanif Kara and Robin Adams, founded the practice AKT in 1996, which, as a side note, renamed itself AKT2 in 2011 when Paul Scott and Jerry O'Brien joined as principals. AKT2 are what are known as design engineers. In the spirit of Anthony Hunt and Ova Arup, they work closely with architects to help realize what are often unorthodox and experimental projects. Over the years, Albert has worked with the likes of Zaha Hadid, Foster and Partners, David Chipperfield, and Thomas Heatherwick, all designers known for questioning norms and pushing against boundaries. Architecture is, of course, full of constraints, and in a way, rewards a kind of conservatism when it comes to adhering to standards and following conventions. Speaking with Albert, you're reminded that this kind of conservatism not only applies to the process of engineering a building, but to the constraints faced by people of color when forging a career in the built environment. In both cases, it's structural. Hearing Albert talk about his life and work, you come to realize how easy it would have been for him to accept a structure of oppression that could have seemed as immovable or indisputable as the laws of physics. As a black man in a predominantly white industry, Albert's developed this intimate understanding of structural rules and conventions in the broadest sense, not so that he can abide by them, but so that he can bend and twist and reform them. There was so much to cover with Albert, I've broken this episode down into two parts. The first part covers his biography and education, and the second, airing next week, looks at the establishment of AKT and Albert's specific approach to engineering. We recorded over two sessions in December of 2022 and January of 2023 at One Old Street Yard in London. So here it is, part one of my interview with the engineer, Albert Williamson Taylor. I'm just turning the mics on now. That's okay. And we'll just kind of warm up. If you just want to say a few words so I can check the levels. Yeah, we can carry on talking about Thomas. (laughs) (laughs) I can use it to check the levels. No, I think I admire his... um, is courage, if I'm honest, taking on that role. Because when he first started, he was pretty much ostracized within the architectural fraternity. I, you know, what the hell are you doing getting involved in architectural commissions? Which he's done very well. You use this term architectural fraternity quite often. Yes. And in different ways. Sometimes it's a fraternity that one does not belong to. Mm. And other times, it's a community of which one is a part. Yes. And I'm really interested in this feeling of belonging. Oh, I think. <laughs> <laughs> because in a lot of ways, you really don't belong. AKT is a practice <laughs> really don't belong. Yes. In both cases, in terms of your identity, um, where you grew up, but also the way you practice. Mm. There's a sense of being slightly outside or if not entirely outside the mainstream. And I wondered if we could begin with this question of, this quite contentious question in a way, whenever it's asked of anyone, Mm. of where you're from. 
Okay. Um, no, you're right. I think it needs to come from there, really, because you know, one's um, upbringing and education influences one's approach to how you then deal with your profession and the world. I mean, that's that's the reality of it. I I, I was born in in East London, in Bethnal Green, in the as they say, in the sounds of Bull Bell. So technically, I'm a proper Cockney. I'm a proper English Cockney. So, um, but then I grew up as a young lad in in Sierra Leone, both in Freetown and also in the in Connor, where the Conflict Diamonds area was. I also grew up in Lagos, Nigeria, and at one time we were moving from both because of the Biafran War. So I experienced a bit of um, the fringes of the implication of the war. Um, and then obviously came back to the UK to do my um, higher educational studies. And that was an eye-opener on, on returning. And I mean, just to jump in there, yeah. you described elsewhere the growing up in Lagos in, in particular, mm. everything seemed possible. There was no understanding or perception of any kind of restrictions that you might meet as a student in your education. And that your struggle really began when you returned to the UK to pursue higher education. Yes. There was a class system in the, in the higher education in the UK. And within that class system, there was also a hierarchy. So you had the universities and you had the polytechnics and the colleges. And there was almost an unspoken rule as to where you had to be. So that was the first barrier one had to sort of try and circumvent, really. And that was really, again, I'm kind of paraphrasing what I've heard you describe elsewhere, this pressure to move into the trades, essentially, which is where a lot of people of color were being pushed. Very early on in my career, as a young person, I could actually, I, I could actually see that there were certain constraints put on you and everybody and as a as a, as a black young person you immediately pigeonholed as to what you should be and how you should be and even the first generation my you know of my family were here their whole um existence and and how they contribute to the british or to the uk was to be accepted and to be accepted means that you have to compromise in a lot of ways. And it, that was very evident to me. And for me, that was the first constraint I was not going to be put into. Mm. So the challenges wasn't just having to deal with not being put into a situation that defines my career for the rest of my life, but also convincing my own, you know, family to right. say, it is possible, mm. you know, I'm going to have a go at this. And I can imagine there was a lot of support, at least from some family members. I'm thinking about how you've spoken about your father in the past. Oh, my father was amazing. Who became a surveyor after training as an architect. Yes. But being refused entry 
essentially yes. by the RIBA. Yes. So he became instead one of the first black expatriates to be sent to parts of West Africa to convince people there to establish local authorities. But always seemed to retain this passion for design and architecture. Oh, very much so. He he even when we was when I was in junior school, he used to give us work to do homework. And that homework was to do a sketch of something in the house. You know, this was when I was about eight, nine, ten. You know, you gotta sketch something, you gotta do some mathematics and you gotta do a bit of writing. He had a beautiful writing and it was more interesting in your writing than it was interested in your grammar. It was all about being able to present your thoughts in a graphical form, whether it's writing or whether it's numbers. Mm. And I think his influence, he, he, he had a very great influence in my, the way I see design. And he introduced you or took you into a drafting studio at some point? Yes. When you were in your early teens? Yes. You saw something that changed your understanding of what, what you could do. Yes. I mean, at that time, I was having a lot of, I was, I was struggling in a way because I could see a slight um, difference in reverence because after independence in West Africa, the established people were the Lebanese and the Indians who occupied positions of semi-authority. So you had the government, but the establishment. And there was a bit of a reverence between how the blacks treated, you know, responded to the whites and how they responded to the Indians and the Lebanese. So as a very young person, I could see that. And it was, it was really uh, an eye-opener to me walking into this office and seeing this black person with a double elephant drawing board mm. sitting on a stage. Can you just explain what a double elephant drawing board is? Right, a double elephant, if you, is um, uh, a A1, a A1 sheet, uh -huh. a double A1 sheet is an A knot, and a double A knot is a double elephant. Okay. So it's a, a really huge piece of um, drawing sheet. And he had his double elephant drawing board, and he was sitting there with the biggest reinforcement drawing I've ever seen. And I can remember I was waiting for my dad while he was talking to his his friend and uh, in the drawing office. And I went up to him and I said, what's this? He said, oh, I'm drawing. I said, what's this? It's for a building, I said. And he explained it to a 14-year-old where I actually understood exactly what he was saying. And I said, do you really draw every single line on it? He said, yes. Do you know what everyone done? He said, yes, this is what they did. And I can remember thinking this guy must be the brightest person on the planet to be able to produce something like this and understand it and that was it i was going to be an engineer i just want to hold on that image for a second of this black man at the head of an office yes at the helm of an elephant drawing board yes in total control absolutely total control of a team but also have the knowledge to produce, to control the design. For me, it was amazing to actually 
see a black person in that position. Mm -hmm. Never seen it before. Mm -hmm. A lot of my father's friends and colleagues he used to visit were Lebanese, part of the establishment. I'm talking about after independence now. Mm -hmm. So it was amazing to see this person in absolute total control. And that's an amazing impact on me. <laughs> so moving forward now, you're returned to the UK and mm. coming up against these obstacles mm. to pursuing your desire to become a structural engineer. You've, you've explained elsewhere that going to class felt like going to war in a way. Yes, it was like, I mean, my, I, I mean, I did, a two, I did two years at Bristol where I did um, a diploma in building construction because having finished uh, my um, equivalent of GCSEAS level in Nigeria and coming over here, it was clear that the only way I was going to move forward was to redo A-levels again, and I wasn't prepared to do that. And even though if I'd stayed and do A-levels again, then I'd have been entitled for a grant, a, a, you know, mm -hmm. local authority grant for my higher education. And I can remember everybody was saying to me, you know, and I said, no, I'm not, I'm not going backwards. And they said, but if you go forwards, then you'll be considered a, an overseas student. So? Um, and I did a diploma in building construction a two-year diploma, which was amazing in Bristol. But that was then pushing me in the, in this, in, in the, in the direction of another box where you expect it, which was more towards being a technical person rather than an academic. Mm -hmm. So if you want to be an academic, you do A-levels. And so... Every black person or student and you were all pushed towards doing a diploma. Mm -hmm. And I did a diploma first, but then understanding what it meant and everything, I went to go to university. And I was heavily discouraged from going to university, mainly because they just said, you're not going to get in. They're not going to, you know. And, I mean, you were one of... Was it three black students in a class of something like 74 to begin 72. With? When I go into Br Bristol, and when I go into Bradford University mm -hmm. with my diploma, I was the only one with the ordinary national diploma in the whole universe, in the whole department. Because when I applied, rather than getting three offers, I only got one from Bradford. And they gave me almost an impossible, they said, out of my eight subjects, I had to get an average over 70% on every single subject. I persevered and worked very, very hard. Mm -hmm. And I did get in with an average of 70.1. <laughs> so I um, arrived two weeks late. There was three black guys in the department. Two were from overseas, from the Caribbean and myself, and there were five women. By the end of the first term, the first term, I was the only one, the only black person left in the whole department. 
um, and I think only three of the women finished. So, I mean, clearly the odds were entirely stacked against you. It was, because I can actually remember walking around the University of Bradford back then and I could count the number of black students in two hands in the whole university, most of them in the social, social science department or in the humanities, but not in the engineering or very few, hardly any. While you were at Bradford, you worked to build some kind of community outside of the classroom. Yes. It had to do with Taekwondo. Yes. There's an implicit sense of defense in the martial arts. <laughs> yes, Taekwondo is a defensive martial arts. But for me, I, I did karate for about a few weeks and I was in a hall of residence and one of, this, one of the guys there was a guy called Nick Tay, who was a captain in the Singaporean army. And he was sent to do a postgraduate diploma. And, and, um, and I was explaining to him about karate and he said, oh, that's not very good. He said, you should do Taekwondo. And I said, what is that? And I can remember him standing there very, just calmly, and literally lifting his left leg up into a high section sidekick in pure balance. It was pure motion. And I thought, whoa, the control <laughs> must be amazing. So I said, yeah, I'd love to do it. There was no Taekwondo clubs around. There was nothing. So I thought, oh, what the hell, let's start one. So I basically went to the studio and said, I'd like to start start a club. I said, they said, well, we'll give you 20 pounds, but you need to get 20 people to sign up to start the club. So I just went around and got 20 people to sign up mm. and started the first Taekwondo club in Bradford University. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to, he was not allowed to be an instructor. So I had to ring around the old yellow pages, find an instructor um, who had to drive 50 miles every, you know, twice a week. So I started the Taekwondo club and um, grew it to definitely the biggest club at Bradford in the period I was there. But as you said, it was also a point of defence. I was very clear in my mind when from my college days at Bristol. So I had a lot of f friction with people for a number of reasons name calling and all that kind of stuff that and I knew I was only a 10 stone I was 63 kilos in weight and I was six foot one um, and I never I never back down from a fight never it doesn't matter who's going to end up in hospital bruises never so I thought to myself I really got to learn to do this properly from a position of defense and it was obvious it was I'm talking about mid to late 70s now. So as soon as I got to Bradford, joined the karate club and signed the taekwondo was a way of survival that allowed me to do what I needed to do. It wasn't just about doing martial arts. It was about survival. Leaving university, mm. you set out to find a practice to work for. And yes. As I gather... Applied to hundreds? Hundreds. Um, when I finished my degree, as I said, I went to Bradford, one of the few universities that did civil structures, and they've always had a 100% um, 
um, success in making sure they provide um, third-year training for the students. And my year was the first year they did not have 100% success because none of the institutions they use were prepared to take me on as a... <laughs> so you were the one student? I that, was the one student in the third year. That struggled to find work through this the, yeah, system? Yeah, the university could not. And I can remember the head of the department called me and says, Albert, look here, we are struggling to find anybody to take you on for your year out. So what we'd like to do is... Um, you know, get you to move straight to your final year and do a three-year and we'll give you a BSc in uh, engineering. And I said, no. I said, I signed up for a BEng four years and that's what I'm going to do. And they said, well, we, we've got this problem we can't solve. And I said, well, I'll solve it. <laughs> I was fairly confident. So I just went out and I started applying for technician positions. And I can remember I got a place at... Um, Allen and Deeside District Council in Wales, in North Wales. I mean, Deeside is such a small town back then. If you drove very fast, you miss it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, after two or three interviews, and I think there's one of those places nobody wanted to go to. Mm, mm. Um, I got a place there. I didn't tell them I was a student. It was after I got the job and I said to the guy, he said to me, have you got any questions for me? I said, yeah, I'm actually a student. He said, whoa, I said, I'm a university student and the government will actually pay you to have me, so I'll be almost free. And you've interviewed, you know, me two, three times and you believe I'm the best person for the job? If, if I'm not good enough, get rid of me in 13 weeks. He looked at me and he said, okay. And from what I understand, every black student after me for the next three years actually went to that place. Okay, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Um, was taken on by them. Um, while I was there, it was quite in, it was fascinating because they gave me a lot of work to do and I did it all within three months' work. I did it in three weeks, there was nothing to do. And I also sorted out one of the flooding systems, which I did in my spare time. I got 95% funding from the environmental agency. And I can remember on my last day when I was finishing, the head of the council called me, and I'd never met him, I just knew of him as name, called me to his office, sat me down and said, I've heard a lot about you. So I gather you're leaving. I said, yes. And he was the one that said to me, um, from what I hear about you and from the work you've done, do not come back to local authority. Go into private practice. He said to me, don't work for a local authority. Come back to go to private practice. And I've, I've always thought about that for quite a while. And then only to realize that a lot of the technical or, uh, how do I say it, engineering-based black people at the time always end up working for local authorities. Mm. And he said to me, don't do that. And I think I've, I took his, you know, his advice. It was when I then left university, when I finished my degree, I can remember I wrote to a hundred and... 30. I remember this was before emails, you know, you got to write everything by hand. I wrote to 130 organized um, firms. Nothing. And then I was asked whether I like to do the masters, which I did. And when I finished the masters, I wrote to 160 
and I got one response. <laughs> and that was a small practice in Bedford. Salaries for a graduate was ten, about 10,000, nine to 10,000 pounds a year. And while I was in the interview, the, the, the principal of the practice, the owner of the practice walked in while I was in the, having the interview and said, I don't care how qualified he is, I'm only going to pay him five and a half grand, which is half <laughs> the going rate. And just like adjusted for inflation, that's about 18K. <laughs> in today's wages. And that's somebody who had, and not only did I had a master's in structural engineering, I, I found out I was the most qualified person in the whole practice. And um, yet, yes, that's what I was offered. <laughs> So, I mean, what we're doing right now is we're enumerating all of the specific barriers mm. you've mm. come up against. Mm. But there are also ways around. Of course. And it, specifically at this practice, mm. from what you've spoken about in really one of the two lectures you've ever given that I could find, yes. was how you started to solve problems in that practice that they themselves deemed unsolvable. Absolutely. Um, the first practice I worked for, it was at a time when we didn't have, you could not analyze a building. You could not do the most simple analysis. So the only way you analyze a building or you do an analysis was to put the parameters of what you want to analyze and then fax it to Arabs didn't analyze it for you without reviewing and then send you back the result and charge you for it. Mm. They had the only analytical pro program. And then you send it back and forth until your analysis was done. So a lot of engineers limited their approach to design by trying to use empirical methods and doing it by hand, which took a long time. When I arrived there and I said, this is ridiculous. So I took it on upon myself to actually write a stiffness analysis program for the practice that allowed us to do continuous beams and so which I did <laughs> <laughs> on a on a Commodore PET computer. Um and for the period I was there, that's what we used. We stopped sending stuff to Arrows for analysis and we did it in-house. But I actually wrote the program. Mm. It took me three months, plus my day job. Mm. Um, um, because I sort of felt, you know, I've always felt it's all about the design. It's all about the project. It's all about what you're providing, producing. And that was the first practice I worked for. Um, then I moved to a practice in London, who was still around. 
and that was an interesting that was actually the most interesting because by that time I began to understand the subtleties of the box. The box being where you expected to be and what you expected to do. Even though I was the most qualified and I was the most analytical, design-led, yet they were still trying to put me in a different box. And that was difficult for me. I was very, very difficult. But I don't quit a battle. So what did you do? But what the challenge, the, the first challenge I got was that this was a practice. It's very difficult to get chartered as a structural engineer. And because back then, hardly anybody had a master's in the subject, and I did, I was allowed to take the exam in three and a half years rather than five. The rule back then was as soon as you get chartered, you, you made an associate, you know. Hmm. And not only was Aaron the, the biggest team in the office, four of us took the exam, three of us passed the exam, and three were made associates, and I wasn't one of them. <laughs> and I thought, this is definitely something wrong here. And... Um, I thought there'd be a right time to discuss this with my senior partners. And at the same time, I was doing a project which was uh, Lot's Road, which uh, maybe I'm wrong, but it, it, from what I understand, it was to the first tensional glass roof and a glass wall. And I remember my boss and the architect was so excited about it, the client was excited about it. And I can remember we had a meeting. My, 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 my associate boss had left, so I was running the team. And it basically, we had a meeting. Oh, this is fantastic. Can we make this work? And I was saying, yeah, we can make it work. And then afterwards, my boss called me into the meeting room and says, Albert, we're not going to do that project. I said, why not? He says, so he says it's too risky. And it's going to, you know, PI issues and so, so, so. And I said, no, I'll, you know, I'll sort it. Mm. And we had a sort of mild, you know, raised voice. And then he left and he went on his annual three, four weeks holiday. And in that period, I did all the design, all the testing with Pilkington's Kingston University, or it was Pulley back then. Client approval cost, the whole thing was done. And he came back and he saw that it was going ahead. And I can remember he called me into the meeting room and the whole office could hear him absolutely tearing me apart mm. to say, how dare, how dare you progress the design after I said, we're not going to do it. And I said, this is what the client wants. Oh, and and I, was, I could not understand the, the end goal of the decision um, but I, I stood my ground. And I think for memory, it was that project that put them on the map. It became part of a book on cladding and facade. It went on an exhibition around the country and all of that. And I'm almost sure 
that I was never mentioned hmm. on there. Um, what, what do you do with that? Are it's you... very difficult, but the, the, the worst one with that same practice that really got me, and that's why I left, was the fact that I had, as I said, I had the biggest team and we're, you know, we're going through projects, and the team grew. And I can remember my, the, the partner calling me and saying, I've got two new um, graduates I want you to work with. I want you to train them. They're two Cambridge graduates. They had a BS in engineering. They only, they've only done a term or a, 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 a year or a term in structures. So they came into my group, fine. And then after about, I don't know, three or four months, I realized that both guys were being paid more than I was. And I was the head of the group, of the team. So what do you do with that? So I thought, no, this is just not acceptable. And I actually asked my boss, I said, I need to have a word with him face to face. He said, me to him, I said, no, outside the office. So he said, oh, why don't you come to my place on a Saturday? I said, yeah, that's fine. And um, I remember that Saturday very well. Um, my my wife, who was my girlfriend then, was really nervous. And she was worried. I was going to get sacked and worried for me in terms of... And I said, no, I've got to do this. So we went into town and I dropped her off at Camden Market and she said she'll spend time. And I went over to my boss's house and we sat in his dining room. And I literally ripped into him. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> I said to him, I said, first, the rules in the company is this. He got, I took my exams. He never made me an associate. He said, you're too young. I said, no, this other guy, there's only six months between us. Made him an associate. I've got, I've running your team. I'm in the biggest group. And then you even had the audacity of bringing these two guys in and you're paying them more than I am. I literally went absolutely. I was not going to be treated that way. And then he said, yeah, we need to correct things and everything. I said, no, there's a perception. Right? This is just not on. He wasn't expecting it either. Mm -hmm. And then the next day I put in my resignation. And I went over to... Anthony Hans. Okay, so we're at the end of our hour. I feel like I'm listening to an amazing audiobook right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would like to talk about engineering. Yes. <laughs> because in, in a sense, even the next practice I went to, that was another battle. Mm. You've opened a can of worms here. No, I mean, this is exactly what I was after, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's almost like, you know, peeling layers mm -hmm. as you go through. Mm -hmm. And as you get more senior, the layers, are, you're unfolding the layers. And I think part of the layers now, in my view, is that the establishment, and I still have this up till today, mm -hmm. establishment still 
would not accept and believe that I'm the design engineer for certain projects. Mm. They think I talk about it like an administrator. So they think that today? Today, yes. They still will not accept. I, I talk to certain clients. I see, yeah, I was the engineer, I did this. and uh, They don't believe me. <laughs> and I'm thinking, yes, I skimmed it. There's no complex project we've done to date up until the next past year. We have now got to, you know, without me having to determine how the engineering is going to work and how the designing is going to work. Mm. Every single one, I've had to do it. Mm -hmm. And yet, when I talk to people on the external, apart from a handful, there's a handful of contractors and client developers mm -hmm. who I deal with. Mm. But the, the, the bigger fraternity, they don't see it. They just, they, they actually don't believe <laughs> they don't believe it's me that's done it. I'm conscious that I'm laughing a lot as you enumerate these almost ab absurd experiences of oppression. And I think the reason I'm laughing yeah. is because of its absurdity. But it also, is absurd, yes. But also, I think, because, and no one can see you right now, Yeah. but the problems themselves, they feel like flies that you're sweating away or dust on yeah. your shoulder that you're brushing up. Yeah, yeah. I, I, the goal is always got to be the project, the design. Everything else is just an inconvenience. You mm -hmm. just, exactly. You just got to, you know, the goal has to always be the goal. And even, you know, deciding to, to start a practice and was very much that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's um, yeah. It's a means to an end. It's a means to an end, and the end, is, in my view, is being able to contribute mm -hmm. with your abilities rather than what mm -hmm. they expect you to do. Mm -hmm. And that's it. It's not. It's very simple. And if you keep that in mind, everything else, as you said, is just an inconvenience. <laughs> Albert, thank okay, you let's, so much. let's leave it there and mm -hmm. let's arrange another one. Scaffold is a podcast from the Architecture Foundation. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. If you like the show, spread the word and leave a rating on iTunes while you're at it. Thanks to Albert Williamson-Taylor. Thanks as always to Scandal Lynn. And thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next week with part two of Albert's interview.